Hey guys, this is Hunter Levine, and thank you for listening to the Captain's Collective Podcast. Brought to you by Skinny Water Culture, Costa Sunglasses, Turtle Box Audio, Florida Fishing Products, and Orvis Fly Fishing. In today's podcast, we have a special episode where we sit down for round two with Harry Spear of Spear Boatworks. Harry was the very first guest to be on the show back in 2019. This podcast is particularly meaningful to me because when I began to really pursue fly fishing in my 20s, I learned about a legend who lived in our area and had retired from a successful career in the Keys. After guiding, Harry began to build boats by hand in a shop not too far from my house. When I began the podcast, I reached out to Harry and asked if he would be my first guest. To my surprise, he said yes. Since then, we've become friends, and I've learned a ton of things on and off the water. During the COVID lockdowns, I even got a chance to build a skiff step-by-step with him. And in this episode, Harry shares more about what he is learning, current life musings, the importance of his faith, and of course, more fish stories. Please help us out by sharing this podcast however you can and leaving a review on Apple or Spotify. We hope you enjoy. Thank you for listening. This is The Captain's Collective. Hey, Harry, thanks again for sitting down, Round 2 Podcast. You were the first ever Captain's Collective Podcast. I'm honored. And uh, five years have gone by. Of course, we've been hanging out and have, yes. have some fun stories, but uh, it's great just to sit back right where it really began for me here at your house here in Sop Choppy, Florida, outside the boat shop you got here, and excited to have you on today. Thanks, man. It's it's fun doing this with you. I've yeah. enjoyed uh, getting to know you and being your friend. Yeah, man, me too. It's I've learned a lot, and I'm excited to dive into some of that. But the first thing I just want to lead off with is when you think about the past five years since we last sat down, what are some things that maybe you've learned since then or maybe some interests that you've started to really lean into? What's new? Well, I've gone through a couple of girlfriends. <laughs> <laughs> that would be one thing I've learned. that They come and they go. <laughs> um as far as professionally, I would say I've learned that to stick with what I've been doing, which is try to make no mistakes so nothing comes back to haunt me. <laughs> and that has been very beneficial for my business to mm-hmm. just not have problems. Mm-hmm. What does that look like, like for you just trying to really focus on that? Uh what it looks like, it's being very detail-oriented. You know, I mean, you glue two pieces of foam together, and there's a little crack. You could just leave that crack and hope nothing ever happens. But if you fill it with putty, you know, you, then there isn't a crack. Yeah. Stuff like that. You know, just making sure whatever you do, you do it as best you can. Mm-hmm. And for you, as you've gotten older and you've built your business a little bit more, you've lived here longer, how has it kind of changed with your relationship with fishing? Are you fishing as much? Are you? Mm, I'm not quite fishing as much as I'd like to Mm -hmm. or playing golf as much as I'd like to. Yeah. I I still pretty much nose the grindstone a lot of the time. So, Mm -hmm. but I enjoy it. What I really enjoy, Hunter is designing and building something I haven't built before and seeing how it works out. Mm-hmm. 
And that's one of the things I've noticed is every time I come over, and I live right down the road, so I've probably honestly come over a hundred times mm-hmm. or more since we last interviewed and hung out, is every time I'm here, even this morning when I got here, you're like, hold on, let me show you this. Let me show you this. You're <laughs> tweaking things and you're you know, building new things, new styles. For you, how do you try to kind of balance out that, okay, I have the the Everglades, which is kind of the the skiff that most people are interested in and that and the legend and yeah. the legend how are you trying to balance okay i want to manufacture lots of these maybe manufacture is not the right word and then i want to also have that freedom to be able to tinker i'm i'm really not good at balancing that out if if i didn't need money on occasion i probably would just do what i like to do mm-hmm. but um i have built this year well last year um, a skiff that Luke and I water tested and I'm now getting ready to make a mold off of that I'm more excited about than any boat that I've built before. It doesn't have a name yet, but I'll say what it does. It has a 12-degree bottom with very aggressive lifting strikes and it's 16 foot long the sides on it are a little bit higher than what I've been making before, and the back end is a little wider. I wanted to make it for a 70, and I put a 60-horsepower Tahatsu tiller on it when I first water-tested it, and at 24 miles an hour over the water, the water broke two feet in front of the rear chine and the transom. So behind where I was sitting. And at 34 miles an hour, it was breaking out of the corner of the transom. And it went 44 miles an hour, top end with Luke and I in it, no prop changing. And I just think that boat is going to be literally amazing how well it will run in just, you know, moderate chop. Mm-hmm. Um I haven't, you know, we took it out on a pretty rough day, but it's, it's a beautiful running boat and it's really a pretty boat. So I'm excited about it. That's going to be this year's launch. Mm -hmm. And what do you feel like, you know, for people who, what style of fishing do you feel like it's going to best fit? Um, I would say the lower keys, Florida Bay, of course, tarpon fishing and that kind of stuff. It's probably going to draft with you and I in it. So let's say four and 400 pounds of human beings and then your regular gear. I'm going to guess it's going to be like seven and a half inches, mm-hmm. maybe eight inches. So that's reasonably shallow. You, It's way shallower than what I guided in. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so it won't be the stealth boat that you go up in in the shallowest of water for redfish and snook and that kind of stuff. But I think bonefish, permit, uh, most, uh, most all guide fishing for two people, it will be a stellar little boat. And you're also building these pond boats, these yeah. pond skiffs. Tell us a little <laughs> bit more about those because you're very proud of those too. Well... It's actually just been, all right, it started out. My friend Steve Huff and I were fishing out of Everglades City, and he was telling me about this 
impoundment that's not too far from him. You can't get a trailer down, blah, blah, blah. I sure would love to have a boat that I could, you know, carry down there and throw in there. And I'll, bro, I'll build you one next week, mm-hmm. which I did. Brought it down to him. It weighed about, I don't know, 45, 50 pounds, 12 foot long. It it was It's a little bit smaller than what I've gravitated to. I started building them like 12 to 14 feet and with a little more beam to them. So just so that they're a little more stable. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when you have a boat 12 or 14 feet long, you can put in the back of your truck and it weighs 60, 65 pounds. Two people can easily pick it up, handle on one end, handle on the other, tote it down, throw it in the water. It just opens up a tremendous amount of water for somebody who doesn't want to paddle around in a canoe or a kayak. Mm -hmm. You can actually stand up and fish in it. Mm -hmm. And is the main application you're seeing people doing as far as powering it trolling motors or? Yeah, so far. I mean, I'm not building transoms in them that are really designed for more than you could maybe put a six horse on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, at, you know, that's really not the destination of mm-hmm. that boat. It's for somebody who knows where there's a piece of water that they can't get their trailer skiff into, and yet they think they want to go fishing there. Mm-hmm. So they bring their truck down there, pick it up, walk over, throw it in the water, put your electric trolling motor on, your battery in it. And go paddle out and catch some bass, maybe some snook or redfish or just whatever lives there. And there's a simplicity about all your designs that we talked about in the first podcast that people can go back and listen to. But, you know, you you got into boat building just by being a guide down in the Keys. And so your kind of relationship with boats and modifying boats and essentially building boats was kind of born out of tweaking and trying to create things for your own application. And that kind of led it to being simple for you now, what's the what's the thing when you look back to those early years that you hope you keep as a boat builder when you think back to the 70s in the Keys? Uh, well, in the 70s in the Keys, I had no idea about boat building. Mm. I mean, I built a boat in 1978. Well, I took an old boat, tore it apart, and rebuilt it and actually guided out of it some. But I didn't know what a good boat was. Mm. I didn't know what a good boat was until I got in a Dolphin Super Skiff. And everything about that boat um, changed my mind about what makes a boat do what you want it to do. And anybody that's designing a boat, if you were to just go back and look at that boat and then go from there, you will make a better boat than you would otherwise. Zero me in a little bit on when you first started interacting with the Super Skiff what when you say that changed the way you, you thought about boats in what ways did it do that well it was quiet there weren't any boats that were quiet you know that had that hard chine going flat all the way around from the stern to the to the bow so when you were pulling when you were at rest the boat was quiet mm-hmm. you could pull into the wind and not hear that plopping sound that drove me crazy and everybody else crazy and the fish crazy. One. Two, the um, way the bottom is constructed, it allows you to run when you slow down with the bow raised up. I mean, I've run across 
from Key West to the Marquesas some days, and I'd look at that water and go, oh, my God, I'm going to die. And that boat would just surf mm-hmm. those waves. So the bottom was constructed so it had run. A small boat would run really well in rough water. It was dry riding, which was my first boat was a Hughes Bonefisher. And, I mean, I guided out of it for five years, but compared to a Dolphin Super Skiff, it was not good. Mm-hmm. It was wet. It was noisy. Didn't pole worth the crap. It drafted probably 15 inches of water. Mm-hmm. Now, the Dolphin Super Skiff probably drafted 12 or 13 inches of water because it had an 18-degree dead rise, and they were built pretty heavy. You know, we were, we didn't, I didn't, hadn't, I hadn't figured out what you could get away with to make a boat lighter and still mm-hmm. make it plenty strong. Mm-hmm. So those were, you know, the, the main things, the ride, the quietness of polling, the ease of polling, the, the boat would spin on its axis when you're polling, and mm-hmm. that's all a result of the way the bottom is designed. And every boat that I've built that's designed for a motor, I've somewhat copied that design in the bottom. It's, uh, it works, mm-hmm. you know. If it's not broke, don't try to fix it. There's a lot of boats out on the market that uh, have not copied that. They don't do the things that you want them to do. Uh, they won't ride bow high. They're wet. They don't spin. You know, boat design is not rocket science, but you got to follow what works, you know. And that's one thing that I, I can look at a boat and tell you how it's going to ride, what it's going to do, just by. <laughs> I've been in a lot of them and I've built a lot of them. Yeah. So one of the things that you and I did together was during COVID, I would come over early in the mornings, I'd bring you a Rocky's biscuit. Oh yeah. Um, we'd sit on the porch and drink coffee. We'd go in and we built uh, a skiff together that we videoed for people who might be interested in buying a kit from mm-hmm. you. Basically a, you know, an unfinished hole where you get to design your own cap and you get a kind of put your own touch on it and mm-hmm. just get a little bit of the feel of building your own skiff without, while knowing that the part that touches the water it's is going to be good. Gonna be good. <laughs> yeah. Um, and when we did that, you know, I didn't have a lot of uh, knowledge about what it took to build a boat. And I was obviously pretty, pretty surprised how much work goes into it. You know, how many, how tedious the process can be. Um, I was pretty impressed that, you know, you were able to just keep doing it day in and day out after all these years, you know, all that fiberglass and all the sanding and (laughs) everything. Um, But I was curious, you know, like when I was going through the process of building that boat with you, and that's the boat that I run today. I I love that boat. Um, You know, as you think about building boats, what do you, let's start with this. What do you hate about building boats and what do you love that just seems to just grinding? (laughs) <laughs> you hate or love grinding? Oh, oh, I love grinding. No, I hate it. God, it's horrible. You know, you got shards of glass everywhere. You know, we have a pretty ventilated shop, but still, unless you have someone behind you with a blower that's actively blowing the glass away from you, or you have a vacuum system in your shop, which I don't have... <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> you are going to get dust on you. And yeah. it's honestly, it's almost sad. It doesn't affect me anymore. I, I'm sure it affects me biologically, but I, I don't feel it anymore. I don't mm-hmm. itch. Maybe in the heat of summer when you're sweating, your pores are open. I can feel it a little bit. But most of the time, it just just annoying. Mm-hmm. You know that stuff's in the air. It's just, it's just pretty horrible. Yeah. What do I love about it? Um, making people happy. That's what I really enjoy. You know, when you build something, a guy like you says, man, I love my boat. Uh, that's, that's, that's payday. Plus mm-hmm. a little bit of cash, you know? Yeah. That, that doesn't, doesn't hurt, hurt either. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, one of the, the cool things about you is you get a chance to, um, watch your son, Luke, who I also did a podcast with, you know, build his, his career and his guide service. He still works with you some in the, in the shop and doing different projects. And, you know, he has his hand in boat building too. You know, as you look at your, your son kind of trying to cut his own trail and things, how does that feel as a father and somebody who's Mm. older, who's, you know, you've walked down it, you're on the other side of it. Um, I love the stage I'm in with my children they're all successful. They're all healthy. Um, Luke is so far ahead of me at his stage in life to where I was mm. in everything from playing music to guiding to boat building to hunting. Whatever that boy puts his mind into, he's just really good at. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's a great student of, of what he loves. And, um, you know, there's, there's things in his life that I'm hoping for that he'll get. And I'm sure he will if he wants them bad enough. And other than that, you know, his loves and his talents are amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a pretty incredible dude. And as, as you try to help him grow as an angler and a guide, what are the things that you're most focused on? I don't. I don't. Um, Luke is a, very much a self-starter. Uh, the best thing that I can do is just be me and let him figure things out. He is not, he's not one that's easy to say, hey, Luke, you need to do something this way. You just do it the way you do it. Let him do it the way he does it. If he stubs his toes, he'll figure it out. He's uh, he's very independent when it comes to his learning style. Mm-hmm. One of the things, you, you know this from last year, was right in the middle of my dad's tarpon season. You know, he was doing a lot of trips, and I think he had like maybe 11 in a row. And he had one day off in between all those trips, and he was going to do some tweaking on his boat. And... Uh, he ended up calling my mom and he's like, I'm on the boat right now in the driveway. And he wasn't feeling good. And he just felt really tired. And he didn't know what was going on. I take him to the hospital. And he was just right on the edge of a major heart attack, huge hmm. blockage. They had to do, you know, emergency surgery, um, you know, and he walked out of there a couple of days later. But obviously, I mean, he was just, had he been on a trip that day, they, they thought, man, he probably wouldn't have made it. And, um, you know, for me, that was a big paradigm shift because it kind of makes the, the time I get with my dad and the time on the water 
a little mm-hmm. bit sweeter for you. How do you try to cherish, you know, cherish the time that you do get, because you guys are getting a fish some together You know, you get a fish yeah. with Trey every once in a while with Luke and locally you guys will slip out and water mm-hmm. test the water test the skiff, maybe look, check a couple things. I mean, for you as a father, how do you view that time with your son? Um, honestly, I wish that's all I had to do. If I could just spend it doing what I love and what my two sons really love, mm-hmm. um, that would be heaven on earth. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm planning a trip with the boys next January, end of January. I went to Mex- Mexico this, this winter to, we flew into Mazatlan and then drew north, drove mm-hmm. north to a lake called El Salto and we went bass fishing which I've never gone bass fishing but I had so much fun um it was beautiful beautiful country beautiful people Mm -hmm. uh great fishing and uh so I'm gonna take my boys next winter I'm really looking forward to that Mm mm-hmm as someone uh, that's a dad to two young kids, and I know a lot of listeners, they're either parents of young children or maybe they just have relationships with younger siblings or, or younger people in their life. What advice would you give them looking back at, you know, you've had this kind of wild career from full speed in the keys to slow, easy living in the panhandle. What advice would you speak into that? Uh, that's a great question. And if I could speak into young people's lives, I would say... Money will not answer your problems. Your children don't care about it. They want your time. And if you can spend time with your kids and teach them the things that you love and you're good at, you will have done a better service than any public school or private school will ever do for your kids. Hmm. Because, you know, book learning is, is one thing. But it doesn't really translate into most people's lives. It's just discipline. That's what it teaches you, discipline to actually sit down and do something. It's good for that. And you do actually learn things that you use as an adult, math, language. But as far as life and living it, I was super fortunate. My wife and I homeschooled our kids Lindsay was in third grade when we started, but Emily, John Hunter, and Luke, their whole schooling was homeschooled. So when I had a day off, marine biology, mm-hmm. <laughs> or we were going hunting, you know, it was just those things. We took a summer and went to Montana for three months. And you just can't do that. If you're, you know, working an eight to five with, you know, some company, but I didn't, you know, mm-hmm. I was my own boss. I made decent money. Um, when I had time, I spent it with my kids. And it's what I treasure the most about that whole experience was the fact that I did it, you know, and, and all the memories and all the photographs and all the things that we have in common because of it. That's what I... I'd want them to know Mm -hmm. that, you know, spend time with your kids, do the things you love, do the things they love. Hopefully they'll do the things that you love too, the hunting and the fishing and all of that kind of stuff. 
it's a great experience. There's a guy, I've read some of his books, and he's just kind of one of those, he's like bald-headed, turtleneck-wearing, intellectual type. And his name's Seth Godin. But he said something that stuck with me a couple years ago that he said, every kid is homeschooled, you know, at least some amount of time. The question Mm -hmm. is, are you going to teach them or, and this is a little outdated, but are the Flintstones, meaning are you just going to put them in front of a TV? (laughs) Like the time that they have at the home, what are they learning? Mm -hmm. If you were to create a Harry Spear report card for homeschool, instead of math, reading, you know, whatever, what, what would your categories of grading be? Well, one, I would teach them math. I would teach them reading. I would teach them science, very important subjects, you know, just to get a feel for the world and how to deal with it. But um, I love nature, so that's number one as far as, you know, uh, alternative curriculum. Mm -hmm. So being able to function inside a natural environment You know, most young people have no, I mean, if you're an urban kid, you know, chicken comes from a store, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, it doesn't grow out in a farm or in my yard like Mm -hmm. they do. And uh, just learning how to deal with nature. All of my kids are good at it. You know, my oldest daughter, who in a lot of ways, things we don't agree on, but I would 100% agree with her on the way she's teaching her kids nature and gardening and all of that stuff she's Mm -hmm. freaking awesome and and those kids are all into it so that kind of stuff i just think is wonderful Mm -hmm. you know when you're god is wonderful you know raise your kids up to uh know who he is and to hopefully to love him Mm. Yeah, I was, uh, you know, I work with college students in Tallahassee and uh, at City Church Tallahassee, and we were doing this uh, this talk about how there's a, a Netflix documentary of a guy who went through this grueling, grueling expedition to get to the top of a mountain, and he ended up towards the end. He wanted to get to the peak so bad, he left the other guys behind. He went through a blizzard. He almost died. He got to the top of the mountain. Three months later, he found out he had hiked the wrong mountain. And it's a metaphor for life there that you can <laughs> accomplish your goals and you can, you know, be successful at, at checking off a list and yet be on the wrong mountain. And I tied that to Ecclesiastes where Solomon at the end of the book is talking to his son and he says, he's read all these books. This is Ecclesiastes 12. I've read all these books and all, I have all this wisdom and here's, here's what it boils down to. Fear God, you know, mm-hmm. meaning, you know, have an awe for God. And I think that, you know, for those who are trying to instill that in their children. Um, nature is the place where everything kind of melts away and it's it's made most clear, I believe, outside of his word. Yeah, uh, it's hard for me to look at the natural world and the universe and conceptualize how that could have happened without a creator. Mm-hmm. I, I think it takes way more faith to not believe in God than it does to believe in God, mm-hmm. way more. I mean, like hundreds of times. Some people are just so, you know, I don't even know what the word is. They're just so tied to know God mm-hmm. that they can't see all the evidence of God mm-hmm. in in nature. It's so complex. It's so beautiful. It's so interwoven. 
that just doesn't seem like there's no design. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and when you're watching all of these animals in all their natural patterns, and you're watching all these animals have this huge food chain which provides for itself, which provides for itself, and mm-hmm. it reminds me of the verse in the New Testament that says, you know, the the birds don't need silos. You know, they mm-hmm. just their food's provided, and mm-hmm. and how much more will the Lord provide for you? I know for you, a part of your your story. Uh, faith is a big part of your life and it's, it's been a big part of your story. I know there was some sort of shift that happened to you when you were in the keys and we didn't really dive too deep into that, but do you want to do that now? Yeah. If you want to, want to hear about it. Well, I prayed to receive Christ when I was 17, but I didn't do anything to grow my faith. Uh, you know, I prayed. That was the only thing. And I prayed mostly when I was in trouble. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which was very very seldom i suspect in the keys um, in the 70s there were some there were moments in my life where i stood on the precipice and could have definitely dove into oblivion and every time i got to that stage which was probably three um i prayed and and just i just heard that voice don't do it don't do it and i didn't so there you have it on that. But when I was like 35, I had a customer, Christopher Parkening, one of the greatest classical guitarists of all the time. He studied under Andre Segovia, hugely committed Christian. And we had been fishing in Homosath that year in May, and this was later in the summer. And he had asked me if I was ready to ask God back into my life. And I said to him, no, but I know that if I do, it will be the most important thing I ever do. And so a few months later, I was sitting on my boat. I just washed it. And um, I just was reflecting. I was going, everybody thinks I have the most awesome life, that everything is perfect in my life. Don't have a girlfriend. I don't have a hope for eternity. (laughs) I'm sitting there and I go, all right, God, this is kind of, I'm not the most proud of this, but it was kind of a challenge prayer. I said, if you'll show yourself real to me, I'll follow you for the rest of my life. Man, it was, and Chris had told me um, earlier, he said, if you do decide to follow Christ, find a Bible-believing church, read your Bible daily, and pray. So I did all those things, and my life just kind of flipped right there. Mm. And and it was like, at first, I would just say it was like a change of clothes. It was nothing deep, you know. You know what I mean by mm-hmm. when I say that. I mean I didn't. There was no deep revelations. There was none of that stuff. It was just, uh, kind of just all right just a different set of clothes I'm wearing. Mm -hmm. And so obviously that's a fond memory for you and that shaped Mm -hmm. a lot of what what you do. If if you find yourself sitting on this porch right here, having a cup of coffee, thinking back to all your great memories over your your career, what are some of the stories and memories that come to mind? Woo, gosh. Um, Let me start with the saddest story. I had a great, great friend, Bill Boone, 
I loved Bill Boone. He was one of the greatest men I've ever known. And he helped me buy a house, and I, I, I just couldn't make it work. And I ended up losing the house and his friendship. And that just about crushed me. But great memories. My dad went in the bonefish tournament with me mm-hmm. when he was 75 years old. As fond a memory as you could have as a son and a dad. And to have him tell me that was the greatest thing he'd ever done in his life. Wow. How would that set on your heart? Yeah. <laughs> Pretty sweet. Um, I just had a, a, a blessed career. Uh, so many great people. Bill Levy, Peter Farrago, both European Jews that escaped concentration camps moved to the united states hugely successful people wise really fine men that just spoke into my life when i was a young man Mm -hmm. you know in my 20s and 30s and uh those guys i mean that was that was huge um you know and i've got to fish famous people and all that stuff and really great anglers and that's all nice you know but Honestly, when you look back at a career, the people that you love and you really respect and care for are the ones that you think about the most. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had my dad, I lost my dad in 1978. So my kids, I think he saw, no, 88. Emily was born, barely. So they didn't have a granddad. Kimberly's dad was derelict, Mm -hmm. drunk. Sorry, Kimberly, if you listen to this. Um, So my kids didn't have a granddad, and I had, God gave me two granddads for my kids. We had a neighbor moved in on Duck Key. I was out in my driveway trimming coconut palms, and this guy drives up on what I call it a sailboat bike, you know, the little wheels. Yeah. Big guy, 6'4". Cape Cod beard. Hi, I'm Gibby. I'm your new neighbor. And I'm thinking, you're weird, dude. (laughs) Anyway, Gibby adopted my family. He came over every morning when they were in town. He'd bring donuts. Kim would make coffee. He bought my kids bicycles for their birthdays and Christmas. And just this great dude. He only lasted a few years and then he died. And then one day we went to church. We were going to Tampa, and we stopped in this little church in Arcadia. And we met this couple that used to live in the Keys, Oki and Unipearl Napier. That's a mouthful. Sounds like a Keys name, though. Uh, no, that's a Kentucky name. <laughs> that's, a, that's a coal miner's daughter's name. <laughs> anyway, Oki was one of these super wise, uneducated guys that had done tremendous in business and he had 225 acres on the uh, peace river Mm -hmm. right outside of arcadia and that day when we met him in church he invited us to lunch we didn't leave for three days and we would literally go see him and unipearl rather than go see my mother the kid's grandmother because it was way more fun Mm -hmm. (laughs) so we you know Things like that are huge, you know, just really wonderful. Mm-hmm. 
wonderful guests. Yeah, those those sound like great stories too to reflect back on. And now you get to not only spend a lot of time with Luke, who's young in the industry, but guys like Trey, other other people that buy your boats or you have relationship with. And so as you interact with the next generation of captains of people who love the outdoors, you know, we could do we there's no end to the podcast of things that people are worried about. And we could sit around and talk about that. But what are you encouraged by? What do you want to uh, see more of? Um Wow, what am I most encouraged about? Well, I think that the young people that are in the industry, um, they definitely love it. So, you know, the love of nature and the love of fishing is just kind of universal. With If you do, you really do. And so that's good. Um, I'm a little bit disturbed with social media people just blabbing because it just puts pressure on a, on a fishery that might not be overfished. Mm -hmm. So that's disturbing, but most encouraged, I, I don't know, bro. It's, it, it just, I grew up in a time when there was nobody on the water and now there's thousands and thousands of people on the water. So it's that in itself is, Hard to get encouraged about <laughs> the water. There's so many people in Florida now. There's such a drain on the aquifer that, you know, comes out of Georgia and Alabama and the north and filters down. Even though you and I live on maybe the largest aquifer in the world, I've heard mm -hmm. it called that, this coming out here between between Panacea and Perry, that, that aquifer, all those underground rivers. There's tons and tons of water coming out, but still many, many of the springs that flowed and pushed water don't push water anymore. So, you know, there's a huge strain on the environment. A lot of people using it, all kinds of pollutants from 22 or 23 million people living in Florida, just living and breathing and doing what they do. It's hard. Mm -hmm. It's hard. It's the one thing I'm encouraged by isn't about the people. It's that life is so powerful. Life is going to, it's going to win. You can almost kill it to extinction. And if you just give it a slight little break, it's going to win. Mm -hmm. It'll come back. Like the bonefish in the Keys, gone. They were gone, gone, gone. Almost not a single one. And now... There's piles of them in the lower keys and they're, you know, they're, they're growing, they're getting bigger every year. Uh, there's a bunch of them up in Biscayne Bay. I, I find that very encouraging. Mm -hmm. Other fisheries are taking it completely right in the shorts, but that doesn't mean they won't rebound. Mm -hmm. Like the permit fishery in the lower keys I've heard is just, it's, it's like the bone fishing was. Well, I know off the Everglades, uh, they see giant schools of permit out mm -hmm. in the Gulf. So permit aren't dead. They change addresses. Hmm. You know, I'm not the guy to talk to about the, the encouraging <laughs> part. <laughs> well, let's zero in on this because you said something about a love for the water. You fished with tons, hundreds of clients, lots of other guides. You've just been around a lot of people fishing and if you were going to dissect the heart of someone who loved the water, what does mm. that look like? 
Um, something that I didn't have a great deal of when I was younger would be respect for the environment. I was I was harsh. I was a user, not a lover. Um, so those people who love the environment, like fishing with Trey, he'll find a big old chunk of plastic like five by ten feet that's all full of mud and he'll throw it in his boat i'd go dude i would never have done yeah in a million years but there are people out there that that they love where they live they try to take care of it i appreciate that hugely i appreciate people who don't try to catch the very last fish or tell other people how many fish they caught. You know, it's entirely adequate to say, I had a nice day on the water. I caught a nice redfish. Well, you could have caught 20 nice redfish, but you could just say, I caught a nice redfish. Then you don't, you're not alerting everybody else. Oh, it's time to get out there. Yeah. You know, and that kind of stuff disturbs me that people are so egocentric about what they're doing that they forget that not only are they screwing themselves, but everybody else that already knows about it. So that kind of an attitude is would be very pleasing to see people not make it about them, hmm. but make it more about the environment and just the fact that, you know, they get to go out there and, and do it. Hmm. You said earlier that there were times in your life where you were on the edge of oblivion. And we know that in the fishing community (laughs) in particular, that it's just so easy to fall into just heavy usage and just a really dark spiral. Also in the fishing community, in today's world, it's easy to fall into the Instagram, the fame chasing, all of that. Mm -hmm. How, How would you instruct somebody to keep the straight and narrow of just that purity of fishing and being there for the right reasons and doing it the right way. Um, I don't know. I, d- I think that if you basically just what I said, you know, I had a really nice day. Uh, it, you know, you don't have to post a picture of a 150-pound tarpon. Uh, I mean, it's cool. I get it. A video. Of, I, I like to watch it. But if if that person were to think, what is that doing to everybody else? You know, how am I influencing my neighbor that fishes? And what you're doing is you're attracting them. Is that what you want? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I understand it from a guide's perspective. It, it helps them build their business. And if I were a young guide today... I'd probably be doing some of it and hating myself for it. But, you know, I've talked to Trey. I've tried to tell Trey, dude, you don't need to be doing this. You're shitting in your own nest. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, who, who, who am I to say anything? I post stuff on my Instagram page trying to build up my followers so I can build my business before I give it to my son, John Hunter, mm-hmm. to grow. Uh, you know, it's a little bit different what I'm doing, but it's still the same, you know, Mm. self-promotion. When you think about, we'll use a golf analogy, but in life, you know, you're approaching your back nine of life. I'm on the 17th. (laughs) (laughs) 
You're on the putting green. <laughs> Hole 18 putting green. Uh, yeah. Anyway, go what, ahead. Well, well, what are, like what what are your priorities right now? Maybe how have those changed from when you were 40 or 50? Uh, it's huge. So as you get closer to eternity, um, your whole perspective on life changes. Um, for me, I whatever I have left, what I'm trying to do is not disturb or harm the legacy that I've created and keep creating a good legacy for my kids and for my own you know, what people remember me by. Mm -hmm. So, um, and that would be different with different people. I happen to be in, you know, on people's radar. So um, it's, it's been really interesting. I never sought that. Mm -hmm. uh, but because I am, I, I want to keep that as clean and as pure as I can. Mm -hmm. You know, I, d I don't want people to think of me as, you know, a jerk or a horse's ass or a lousy person or dad for whatever the industry or anything mm -hmm. else. I want them to have the best perception of who I am. So that's the way I try to live. Mm -hmm. And, and with that being said, I'm trying to have as much fun as I possibly can while I'm still here. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, you know, the balance between doing good for my kids and my community and having fun, I'm tipping towards the fun side. My kids are all doing good. They don't need me. If mm -hmm. I, they never got anything from me, they've gotten plenty. Mm -hmm. You know, they were raised well. Um, you know, they've, they've learned, they've, all got good consciences they're good citizens um yeah they don't need anything from their dad they need their dad to not be a jerk mm -hmm. how's that going <laughs> it's going good <laughs> you know i mean i have my moments mm -hmm. we all do i i'm probably one of the more black and white people you know mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not too much into try to shading gray when i see black or white mm -hmm. uh, uh if you don't like what I think, don't ask me the question. That's mm -hmm. the way I look at it. So, and I think that comes with just, I've been around for a long time and I've already, you know, I've done most of my stuff. Mm -hmm. So for me, honesty is an easy way to go. Mm -hmm. It's a whole lot easier than trying to figure a way to shade things. Hmm. Last question. So if you could design one perfect day, one last day on the water. Woo! Tell us about it. Um, everybody that I love would be with me. It'd be a pile. Mm. You're getting into my heart now, bro. Um, it'd be a beautiful day. There'd be fish everywhere, birds everywhere. Uh, the sun would feel great on my skin. Every cast I made would be perfect. Every cast they made would be perfect. Fish would fly. And, uh, yeah, it'd be just like, you know, being in heaven. That's mm. all. And, you know, it's totally unrealistic, but you asked me if I could design it. Might hey. as well design it like that. Yeah. 
Well, I really appreciate the time, and uh, it's been great getting around too with you, getting to know you, being a, a kid down the street, and grateful for how you've invested in me and welcomed me in your home and shared meals and built skiffs and had a lot of fun, so I'm grateful for it, and thank you for all the time. Thank you, Hunter. I love you and your family, bro. You you know, you've got a great family, your dad, your mom, your kids, your wife. You've done really good. You are you are the type of guy that I would want everybody, young man, that I cared about to be like. That means a lot. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to Captain's Collective. We hope that you enjoyed our conversation together. Help us out by leaving a review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts, and please continue to share with friends and family. Thanks for listening. This is The Captain's Collective. Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois and the whole crew here at Duck Camp Dinners every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. I'm Will Cooper, and you're listening to HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast on the Waypoint Podcast Network. Stick around as I bring you more stories and interviews from veteran hunters and industry professionals who inspire us all to be better equipped in the woods and in life.